Welcome to the teaching ministry of C4 Church. Good morning to you, C4 family, and to the, like Josh said, the ever-growing online audience, wherever you might be today. Uh, we're so glad you're joining us uh, this morning. Well, we're coming basically to the end of our series. We're a week out. Uh, out of the book of Revelation, the first few chapters. And if you've got your Bible this morning, electronic or physical, I'd love you to turn to Revelation chapter 3. You know, in language, uh, no matter what your mother tongue is, uh, over time we use words or names and we forget their original meaning and we impose different meanings on them. And so what we speak today in 2012, some of the words we use in one way, if they were said 100 or 200 years ago, would have a radically different meaning, though it's the same language. It's interesting, as we're going to be talking about uh, the city of Philadelphia this morning, it's interesting how things have changed. When you hear the word Philadelphia in our culture, many of us think about the American city just south of us. Uh, If you are a sports fan, you think of certain teams, uh, the 76ers, the Eagles, whatever. Uh, If you're a foodaholic and you watch the Food Network too much, you think of Philly cheesesteaks. Uh, right? Uh, but in, in general, in our culture, when you hear the word Philly or Philadelphia, you don't think about any of that. You think about cream cheese, right? I mean, that's, that is the brilliant branding of Philadelphia cream cheese. And as I've preached before, I'm completely perplexed by their view of heaven. I don't know if you are. Uh, you go to heaven, it's fluffy. Every uh, angel looks like a weird yoga instructor. There's, uh, there's all these middle-aged women who are in crisis. Obviously, it's like desperate housewives in heaven. I don't get it. And they're getting wings and fill it, cream cheese. It makes no sense. But when you say Philadelphia, it, it's, that's what we think about. But interestingly, Philadelphia is a very ancient thing. And though it has a city now in the United States, it actually existed somewhere else so long ago in ancient Turkey. This city is where God, through Jesus, through this vision, shows up to speak once again. Now, interesting, out of the seven that we've been going through, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, Philadelphia is the youngest of these seven ancient cities. It was founded in 140 B.C., 140 years before Jesus was born. This city was birthed by a guy named Adelus Philadelphus II. Yes, there was a man whose name was Philadelphia. So there's the origin. Now this person was significant, and he did great work, and we're going to be able to hear about it today. They called Philadelphia in its day the ancient gateway to the east. It was 30 miles south of Sardis. It was a successful place because it was on a key Roman road that actually allowed them to influence and control trade from the whole known world at that moment from the east. Not only that, it was famous for grape growing. Uh, Volcanic ash over time had produced amazing, amazing soil. So they had thousands of vineyards. For for us today, it would be like Niagara-on-the-Lake or the Bordeaux region in France or if you go to Northern California or Australia. This place was known for fantastic wine and fantastic vineyards. Now, because of it, it also became the worship center of a god named Dionysius. Now, this god was the god of grape harvest, wine-making wine, ritual madness, and ecstasy in Greek mythology. Interesting. Notice the connection, right? Every time that you misuse alcohol, drunkenness, going crazy, sexual misconduct, and they worship this god for all of those things, a god I don't want to worship. But anyway, that's what they worshiped. It was the heartbeat of the religion at that moment. 
The city, though, was not just built for the influx of people, nor was it just built because there was good volcanic ash for winemaking, nor was it just built because it was strategic on the commerce commerce route. There was a much deeper reason why Philadelphia was built. And it's interesting, many cities, if you think about their origins, are not built with intention. Many of them are built by survivability. But this one was built with not just a mission, but a vision. It's like church. Many churches do not have a particular vision. We do here in this church, but many do not. Well, this city was founded with a purpose, and it was this. Their goal was to Hellenize the whole area. They built Philadelphia to become a center for and a beacon of Greek culture for that day. Their goal was to declare that Greek culture was better, brighter, more intellectual, and more unifying than what was there before. And the question you always ask was, was the vision successful? Yes, Within 150 years, the former culture, the Lydian Empire and language, was completely gone, and Greek understanding, religion, culture, and language had completely taken hold and replaced it. Philadelphia was the epicenter, post-Alexander the Great, of trying to make modern-day Turkey, which it is now, ancient Turkey, Greek in understanding. Now, there's only one problem with the city. Historians tell us this. It had problems called earthquakes. The same earthquake that devastated Sardis in 17 AD was just as bad in this city. It was always having problems with earthquakes. So let me bring it home for us who are at least North Americans. Really, Philadelphia is like California today. Lots of good sun, really good wine, lots of trade, lots of money, tons of small and large earthquakes, and they're always waiting for the big one to come. That's exactly what their experience was, and the big one came in 17 AD and devastated the city, and it had to be rebuilt, but never recovered fully. Now, in the middle of vineyards, in the middle of trading coming from all parts of the world, in the middle of a multicultural experience, in the middle of this city, a small but growing group of people started confessing that Jesus was Savior and he was Lord. But in this case, almost all of them, at least in the very beginning few years, were all Jews connected to the large Jewish community or they were non-Jews who had already converted to Judaism. And that is where the suffering of this community begins. See, at this moment, unlike all the other cities, there is no internal problem in this church. There's no false teaching, no heresy, no false teachers showing up. It's not marked by disunity, rancor, lack of love. The opposition that we're about to read here comes from the outside. They had a terrible run-in with their own family. Some of you sitting here today or online have been through the worst form of divorce. It's vicious, it's terrible, emotionally, you almost never recover. And in this case, the emotional level happening here is probably equal to that. Within this case, the majority of Jews, like I said, were Christian uh, Jews who were converting to Christianity and they were following Jesus. And this is what happens. They found Jesus and started saying that they believed he was the Messiah and he was the fulfillment of their whole faith. In other words, they started teaching that Christianity is completed Judaism. Now, things for a while were fine. But then as it started getting more and more aggressive in public, that They started saying that they had chosen Jesus, and they were calling him the Messiah, and they were calling him the King of the Jews. And then when they started to, here it is, worship him, and they started to say to their synagogue leaders, you don't need to lead us in prayers anymore for the return of the Messiah because he's already come, things got bad. At this moment, they were given a choice. Either you renounce Jesus, or you're going to get kicked out of the synagogue. And at that moment, they made that fateful 
dangerous decision. They left. They left family, friends, all their social connections, and many of them would have lost their jobs because it was connected to that community. Think about it. All they held culturally, sociologically, religiously was now ripped away from them just because they decided to love Jesus. Now they're between a rock and a hard place. They have been kicked out of the Jewish community, which was their coverage, and now they're left in Greek and Roman culture, which they also will not adopt because they think it's paganism inspired by the demonic. And so now they are left alone. As one wrote, Jewish hostility towards Christians stems from two places. It stems from the conviction by Jewish leadership that it was blasphemy to worship some Galilean peasant who had died a criminal's death. And second of all, the apparent success of Christians converting both Jews and non-Jews within the synagogue became the tension point. Jesus now comes to this isolated group that has lost so much in the middle of great wealth, and he reveals himself to them, and he says these words in Revelation 3.7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. These people are are living in the opposite of the name of the city. This is no longer a city of brotherly love for them. Jesus comes and he reveals himself. Now, interesting, if you've been following us in this whole series, this is the first time that Jesus chooses not to refer back to images from the original vision from himself. He chooses other parts of who he is to speak, to encourage, to bolster this group of people. What is so amazing is that this church and Smyrna are the only two churches that Jesus shows up to and doesn't rebuke them for anything. There is no note of disapproval, no reproach. He says, well done, and keeps going, and says, keep going. Notice how Jesus reveals himself. He says these words. Uh, these are the words of him who are holy and true. This is very significant for this community. Here it is. Number one, holy here does not just mean without sin or separated. It is actually a title in Greek, the Holy One. Jesus is showing up and declaring to this group of Christians that I, Jesus the Christ, am the Son of God. I am equal with the Father. I am God. The Lord God title only is used from Genesis to Revelation for God himself. He is the Holy One. The synagogue may say I am not, but let me tell you something. Oh, yes, I am. And not only am I holy, I am true. Jesus, unlike the best of us, is fully trustworthy, reliable, genuine, and faithful. Again, these descriptions are always about his lordship, that Jesus is Lord, King, that he has full authority and power. He is in control of history, no matter what people say, no matter how people live, or what the governments do, or what the religious systems of the day do, or no matter what people think will happen, he is Lord. Jesus Christ's ongoing claim is connected to his oneness with the Father. John records these continuing words, not only is he holy and true, but he is the one that holds the key, singular, of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. Now, Jews in the first century hearing this would understand the gravity of this grandiose statement. Here it is. Number one, there was a mandatory understanding that the Messiah, the Christ, had to come from the Davidic line, from David. But second of all, any person growing up in synagogue, many of them, of course, had memorized vast parts of the Old Testament, would go, that's plagiarism. That's not new words. I I read that as a kid, and I heard the rabbi last week say it. See, this is an exact quote quote out of Isaiah 22.20. Listen, here's the old words. In that day, 
I will summon my servant Elikam, and I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand your authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. And what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him in like a peg, firm into place. He will be a seat of honor for the house of his father. All the glory, notice, all the glory of his family will hang on him. His offspring and offshoots and all its lesser vessels from bowls to all the jars. Here's the point. Just like Elikim had authority over the household of Israel, now the image of having complete authority over the royal household is given to Jesus. This passage in Isaiah was a foreshadow of the coming of the Messiah. And this is what this is saying. This is so intolerant, so, so offensive if you don't believe in Jesus. Jesus is declaring about himself. That he has authority not only over world history, but Jewish history. That they are his people because he is claiming to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is saying that he is the one that walked with Adam and Eve in the coolness of the day. He is saying that he is the God that met with Moses at the burning bush and gave the Ten Commandments. He is saying, I have authority and the synagogue has misspoken. It's deep. What was Jesus' last words before he ascended to heaven? All authority has been given on heaven and earth to me, so now go. What does he say in Revelation 1 about authority? He talks about other keys. He says, I actually hold the keys of death and Hades and hell. One person reflecting said, such an assurance would be profoundly relevant to Christians now facing, the expo- being expo- ex- facing getting kicked out of the synagogue. Jesus says he's holy, he's true, he holds this key. And because of that, he can open and close what he wants. When Jesus firmly acts, no one can stop him. No one can interfere. No one can prevent his will in the end. This is talking, by the way, about relationship with God. This is Jesus himself saying that he is the one, catch this, who allows people into heaven and does not allow people into heaven. This is saying he is the one who gives relationship or denies relationship. He is the author of salvation. He alone gives or he alone withholds. To this church that's now suffering at the hands of family and friends and grandparents, he is really saying your old community may actually declare over you that you do not know God and that you're not allowed to be part of God's community, but I am telling you, I am telling you right now that you are part of my community because I am the head of the community, I am the foundation of the community, I am God in flesh, and just as I was sent by the Father to carry out a task which I am completing, I want to reassure you I'm going to complete it in you. Here's the first intentional contrast between the actions of the local synagogue in excommunicating Christian Jews in God's view. As one wrote, Jesus has opened the door to the kingdom of God to this church. No matter if the door to the synagogue is closed, the door into the kingdom remains open. So with all that power, the one that's Messiah, the one that is the king of the Jews, the one that is the king, really holds the king, the key of David, he now declares his complete sovereignty, and he shows up, and he gives unqualified blessing. I know your deeds. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Notice again, he talks about opening closed doors. He repeats it twice. The first meaning is talking about salvation and relationship, but now there's more. 
The open door is also connected to the idea of evangelism. Paul, time and time again, uses the theme of an open door to talk about connecting people back to God. So this is what he's saying. Just like your city was built to speak and propagate and signal and herald Greek culture, so you as a little church are going to do the same for me. Not only have I opened the door of salvation to you, but I am going to open the door back to your city and to the synagogue you were just kicked out of, and I am going to give you the opportunity to reconnect with them in the name of Jesus. This is powerful. Jesus opens a door. When he opens a door to a city, a province, a family, no matter the opposition, spiritual or physical, it remains open. Why? Because when Jesus shows up and says he's going to introduce people to himself, he does it. That's an amen moment. So Jesus shows up and says, the door is open to me, and even those who have kicked you out, I'm going to open the door back up again. I mean, this is the heartbeat of what Jesus was saying in John 6, 44. No one comes to me unless the Father who draws, uh, sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. With all this promise and all this affirmation, opportunity and joy, I love that Jesus does not make light of their situation. He, he doesn't gloss over the pain. He's honest about their suffering. God always is sincerely connected to genuine suffering. But he also puts it always in right perspective. He says, I know that you have little strength, yet you've kept my word and you've not denied my name. That little phrase, little strength, is important. It's social powerlessness. What a contrast to last week's church to this one. They thought they were so alive and strong, but they were really dead. But they understand, this church understands, they actually are weak. Let me say this this morning. Spiritual self-awareness is always at the heart of a healthy church. Spiritual self-awareness is always the precondition of revival. They didn't invest in reputation. They didn't puff themselves up and try to play a game so, so the, the, the city or the synagogue would like them. They were weak, and they knew they were weak. They'd lost everything. And yet in the middle of that, they kept Jesus' words, and they would not deny Jesus as the Christ, and it cost them so very much. Jesus thanks them for their faithfulness and encourages them. But as he's doing that, almost like in one sentence, his eyes and his voice move from his community back now to the other community that just kicked them out. And he said these words, listen to these words. I will make those who are from the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews but are not, but are liars, they're going to bow at your feet. Is that how you think about Jesus every week? Jesus the Christ shows up and says, let me tell you the truth, O synagogue, about yourself. Now, like I've preached before, is this outright anti-Semitism? It's these passages in history that have been used to justify the horrific acts like the Holocaust. Is this Jesus himself promoting an anti-Semitic understanding? No. Never, ever understand it that way. Do not forget that Jesus is the Jewish Son of God. He's the Messiah. He is a Jew. The original 12s were Jewish. Paul was Jewish. John, who's recording this, is Jewish. The church in Philadelphia, they are Jews themselves. See, here's the tension point. We as Christians, whether Jew or not, and we have both in our church here, we as a movement for 2,000 years have always viewed our faith as the sort of the connection or the converting to the fullest form of Judaism. You can't be a Christian and not think like a Jew. We worship a Hebrew God, right? Yeah. 
We worship Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's God found in the face of Jesus. At the heart of our movement is not an arrogance or hatred for the Jewish people. It is a deep sadness overall because they themselves have cut themselves off from their own heritage, which finds its full fulfillment in Jesus because he is the promised Messiah. And so what you have here is Jesus showing up to the synagogue and saying, you think you're Jews, but you've rejected the God of the Jews. It's what Paul said in Romans 2.28. A man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly, nor a circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. Circumcision is a circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by some written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. We as Christians believe that real Jewishness, not ethnicity, religion, real Jewishness, being a child of God, Being in right relationship with God is not about physical birth or cuts on the skin or devotion to the Old Testament. A real Jew, a real child of God is an inward thing. Circumcision is the work of God in our heart. And you only get this when you trust alone in Jesus the Messiah. And then you're given the Spirit of God and then you become a child of God. Paul and John and Jesus say this again and again. Only those who faith in Christ, who receive the Spirit of God, make up God's children. There is a radical redefinition of Jew here. Those who have met Jesus the Messiah are religiously children of God. So they're not of God. He's saying they're the synagogue of Satan. Is this saying every Jew is a Satanist? No. Is this saying every synagogue is from Satan? No. That's not what, that's not what John is trying to say. What he's saying is this, they're working now for the wrong side and they do not know it. As another scholar observed, never forget that John's recorded rhetoric of Jesus is just as strong for non-Jewish false teachers. Here's the point, you will stand outside of God's providence and God's relationship whether you reject him as a non-Jew or a Jew. Only those who connect through Jesus to God become part of the people of God and the rhetoric towards false teachers and the synagogue is the same. These are strong and uncomfortable words. This also should bring home this morning to us and you online that spiritual conflict is real. There is a real war being waged in the heavenlies and in our own experiences. Again, the idea like I've preached that a Christian cannot be touched or hurt by the demonic or by Satan because you're a Christian is wrong. Satan in this context is using religious and political systems of the day and was inspiring people to oppose Jesus and that physically and emotionally and religiously affected the people of God. Satan, the slanderer and accuser and adversary, is the ultimate source of tribulation for anyone who loves Jesus. And just like the church is the hands and feet of God, so other people, knowingly or not, can become the hands and feet of the other spirit that opposes the living God on earth. Remember this this morning, C4. Knowing the source of our persecution matters. If the true source of opposition to Jesus is spiritual, not flesh and blood, then we can be led to genuinely pray for those that hate us, misunderstand us, or mock us. We can love our enemies and pray for those that persecute us. Why? Because we understand in the end that they really are not the enemy. It is the one behind them that is being inspiring wickedness. And if you get that, you will end up never giving into racism, wrong political ideology, and you will never waste your time getting angry at those that do not love our faith because you will realize the true enemy.
And you'll have mercy on those made in the image of God just like we needed it, right? That's the heart of this. But Jesus does say at this moment to you in the synagogue of Satan, you are liars. And then says, I will make them come and fall down at the church's feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. The love for Jesus must not be overlooked in this case. Jesus is saying he loves these people. This is a stunning reversal of what they call the apocalyptic understanding. Not only do the weak become strong, not only do those that think they know God actually find out they don't know God, but this is actually the grand reversal of what Jewish leaders taught in their day. Jewish leaders said at the end of time, all non-Jews would bow at the Jewish nation's feet and declare that they did not know God. But now, those who actually pray that and claim that are going to have to do it at the church's feet under the power of Jesus. It's what Moffat called the grim irony of providence. What they expected non-Jews to do, they themselves will now have to do to a mixed community of Jews and non-Jews, now called the church. Those whom I love. Those whom I love. The community that Jesus is love. Never forget this morning that the church is God's plan. The church is the hope of the world because Jesus has instituted the idea of a movement perpetuating himself. The church is the new grand move of God. It is, notice, the reverse of Babel. It is God making a new house. It is God making a new community that finds its identity, purpose, and power in the personhood of Jesus Christ and in his spirit and his word. History, religion, gender, past failure, or success do not make up the church. Unity is given through Jesus. That is why Jesus, when he was on earth and was doing ministry, got so angry in the temple. When he went there and they were selling everything, do you remember? And he starts flipping out. You never expected the Messiah to flip out like this, right? And he's throwing tables and, he's, and people are going chaos. And he says, you have made my father's house what? It's a den of robbers. This is supposed to be a house of prayer for what? All nations. Why was Jesus angry? Because he knew that the role of Israel was to show the world who God was and they had failed and he had come to reverse their sin. And so now at this moment, Jesus is showing up in Philadelphia and saying to the synagogue system, you still don't get it, do you? It's what Paul said in his grand writing in Ephesians 2 when he sort of overlooks all of church history and he says this, talking about Jews and non-Jews making up the new people of God. He says, God's purpose, verse 15, was to create in himself one new person out of two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put death to their hostility. He came and preached peace to you that were far away, non-Jews, and you who were close, Jews. Through him we both have access now to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the Old Testament, the prophets, with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises up to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you two are being built up together, becoming a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. Jesus is saying, you are my temple. You're my synagogue. You're my house. And since you are mine, let me encourage you. Verse 10, since you have kept my command and endured patiently, 
I also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole earth to test those who live on the earth. This is the only time in the first three chapters where the rest of the book of Revelation is almost mentioned. There is coming a time where God will bring great trial on the earth. Christians are divided in four camps over it, and that's fine. Three of them are going to find out they were wrong in the end, right? And that's just fine. It's interesting, you know, I grew up in a church that taught that this was the rapture, that things were going to get really bad, and just before they got really bad, we get out, and then all hell breaks loose, and we come back down, and everything's great. Now, I personally, you may hold that, and others do, and I have deep respect, I just disagree with you. I don't find any reference, interestingly, in the Bible to Christians getting out in the nick of time. Do you? It's interesting how Christians and Jesus himself always go through the tribulation terribly and are preserved in the middle of it. See, the idea of him keeping is not removing, it is holding and sustaining. I personally hold that at that time when the great end comes, whenever it might be, since we have been in the last days, by the way, for 2,000 years, if someone tells you it's new, it's not. It's quite old, just saying. We're going to live through it, in my opinion. But here nor there, here is the point. Jesus says to us in this church, I will hold you. And then he says these words, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so no one will take your crown. Remember the Olympic crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of the heavens from my God. And I will also write in him my new name. Jesus gives profound affirmation. All these powerful statements are almost sung over this community. All this truth is lavished on a community that just lost their job, their grandparents, their friends, their leaders. God, through Jesus, comes and says, you are a pillar in a temple. You will never be shaken. You will never be removed. Now, by the way, if you're getting bored, look back here and listen to this, please. Important. This gift of stability is the greatest gift Jesus could give them. They had just lost all their stability socially and religiously and economically. But not only that, this is a play on the city. This city always had trouble with earthquakes. They were always ready to run in case the city came down. And he's now saying, you are never in the future going to experience that reality, not only physically, but religiously ever again. Why? Because I am giving you, I love this, eternal security. I'm promising you security, I'm promising you a new city, and I'm promising you a new name. Do you notice something about this? Everything that we long for sitting in this room, everything you online, whether you're watching on a plane, you're at the cottage, you're in front of your computer, everything every human being longs for is promised by Jesus. Attention. Not just attention, like eye-gazing, I'm really listening to you, attention. Love. Security. Safety, a roof over your head, and being led by someone who never messes up. Everything the human heart wants, Jesus says to this church, it's me, and I'm giving it to you. See, the end of the book of Revelation ends with two grand promises. One is the return of our master Jesus, who will make all things right. And the second is the coming of the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is a promise for all of us who love and know Jesus. The new Jerusalem is, in my opinion, a symbolic thing that represents all new things, all things made right. It reads like this in Revelation 21, 21. Then I saw new heavens and a new earth. The first heaven and earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. 
By the way, if you don't understand that, it's because in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the sea was the place where the demonic lived. Have you ever thought about that? This is a statement saying, evil is gone. Love it. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God had prepared a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling place of God is with people. And he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The old order of things have passed away. Now here's why I love this. Theologians, when they wrestle with the New Jerusalem idea, say it encompasses three things. Paradise, the right city, and the temple. Here's why this is profound to the, Philippi- to, sorry, to the Philadelphia church and to us. Number one, it is a promise that when Jesus returns, we are not going to be at war with creation anymore. When Jesus shows back up, there is never again going to be an earthquake. There's never again going to be pestilence. There's never going to be AIDS. There's never going to be cancer. There's never going to be a famine again. There's never going to be pollution again. Can you imagine? No pollution. No nuclear weapons. No spills. Nothing. Because when Jesus comes back, Eden is going to be given back in the rightest sense. When Jesus returns, he says to this church, you are going to, in the new heavens and the new earth, in this new Jerusalem, creation will no longer moan because it will be set free and it will be right again. Awesome. Not only that, then he says, you are going to reside in a city. The Bible begins in a garden but ends in a city. God loves cities if you don't know that. And God prepares us for the future to live in a city. You say, well, why is that significant? I'll tell you why. Because it's the great symbol of us living together in proximity and doing it right. No more crime. No more racism. No more misunderstanding. No economic divisions that separate. It's done. We're going to live in a city where God will inspire the nations into understanding. And we will live in a city that was right. Can you imagine if Toronto, everyone in Toronto was perfect, how different Toronto would be? Can you imagine New York City being perfect? How awesome that would be to live in community. I'll say Paris. I want to go there. Paris. Joanna. Croissants. Okay. Right? This is the heart of what we're talking about. God promises his return. And when he returns to this church that's suffering, that in the middle of earthquakes and false gods and losing the synagogue, says creation's going to be right. You're going to live in perfect harmony. There's going to be no battle with anyone else. And then he says also, it is temple. That we will live in intimate presence with our God. We will see God face to face. And we will not care in the sense that we will never die because we ourselves will be made right by Jesus. And we can face God and have intimacy with him. And we'll live in eternity with him. And we will find fulfillment because we will be led by him. And we won't resist his leading because we are made to be led by him. He says, this new Jerusalem is my promise to you. This is my promise to you. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is the holy and true one. He's the sovereign one. He is the one that opens doors. This church is found faithful. They kept Jesus' word. They did not deny him. And though it cost him so very much, they have little strength left. But Jesus is with them. And he calls them like he does to every church to overcome. To continue uh, for, to, to continue. To love him and reminds them that there is a secure dwelling that's coming in the future. When you read this quickly, 
you need to ask yourself a question of what is Jesus saying to us. There's lots of applications, but the question is what is Jesus uniquely saying to us at this moment in our time? So a few thoughts. Number one, I hope you're catching this in this series, and I know you are because the amount of Twitter and Facebook and emails and conversations I'm now having with you and the online community, it's starting to sink in. Let me say this so gently. There is a cost to following Jesus. There is a cost to following Jesus. Jesus said you should consider before you meet him. These Christians were losing family and all they loved. Faithfulness for many of us sitting in this room or online will actually start meaning more and more being excluded from the circles that mean so much to us. Really following Jesus means giving up so much. That is why we are preaching that Jesus has to be Savior and Lord. We need to be willing slaves to Jesus because if it does not cost you anything, maybe you have not met him. Some of you need to think about your jobs. Some of you may have to give up your jobs even in this church. Because you regularly are told, formally or informally, to violate your faith there. Sin is expected. It is a core value in the corporation you work in. Lying or cheating or sexual misconduct. You can fill in the blank. But when you start as a Christian asking Jesus to be the Lord of your life and the Lord over everything and other things become secondary, some of you who have not stood in your job context are going to have to start standing and saying, you know what, I know it's expected here. I cannot lie anymore. I cannot cheat anymore. I cannot swindle. I cannot do this because I am a Christian. And someone's going to say to you, well, then either that or you lose your job and you will be faced with the question, who is your provider? It costs to follow Jesus. Some of you are starting to realize, and I know this has been the big one, that to follow Jesus, you have to give up your other worldviews. If you're religiously Jewish, you, you do need to come and say Jesus is the Messiah. You can't be a Christian and a Buddhist. You can't be a Christian and Baha'i. You cannot be a Christian and participate in New Age philosophy or Wiccanism. You cannot be a Muslim and a real follower of Jesus. And here's the big one for Durham. You cannot be a nominal Christian and be a real Christian. You can't come to church on Easter and Christmas and say you're a Christian because it's ethnicity or just because you're not something else. You have to radically embrace the living Jesus of Scripture and say you are Savior and Lord and you now own my life and because you are so beautiful and kind and because you love me, I give my life to you. Nominal Christianity, like I preached last week, is a plague on the church. Why? Because it says to a generation, you can be a Christian and not really meet Jesus. There's a cost to following Jesus. For others of you, you've realized it's family and friends. Some of you have actually lost family and friends, but many more of you in our church have had strained relationships with those that you really love because Jesus and his relationship and his priorities are now more important than your family. This is so important to hear this morning. Jesus is not always just meek and mild. In Matthew 10, 32, he says, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn man against his father, daughter against her mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Some of you are going, yeah, the last one's obvious. Yeah, well, no. (laughs) No. What's being said here is this. Is just Jesus being cultic and saying, oh, you can't have any relation? No. But what he is saying is this. When you truly encounter the living Jesus and he becomes Savior and King, 
you start living differently and your family says, well, you love me less or what are you doing all that weird stuff for? And you say, well, I'm a Christian now. I deeply, and the tension comes right there and you have a choice to make a deal with the devil or actually follow Jesus. You must understand that following Jesus sincerely, especially if you come from a nominal Christian home or a a totally non-religious home, it will cause tension because eventually you're going to have to say, I love Jesus more than you. People were shocked a few weeks ago when I said I deeply love my wife and my kids, but I love Jesus more. I do. She's sitting right there. I love it, but I do. Because that's what Christianity is. It's what we do at every single Christian marriage, right? God first. The more I love God and he loves me, and the more my wife loves God and she, and she loves him, the better we'll love each other. But Jesus is the head of our house. And so we must understand that to follow Jesus in our culture as it now moves from, well, basically post-Christian, now to secular, now even towards hostile, it will cost us to follow Jesus. And like the Philadelphian Christians, Jesus shows up to many of us and says, take hope and courage. They may say you're out, but I say you're in, and my voice lasts forever. The second thing is this. Some of us feel that we have so little power. We look around at our culture, our family, and our life, and we say, you know, yeah, we go to a big church, but man, we feel weak. I want to remind you here this morning that faithfulness is more important than success. And if you're weak, it's okay. I think someone who's significant, his name was, oh right, Paul, said, my grace is sufficient for you, Jesus said to Paul. My, my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all more the gladly about my weakness, so Christ's power may rest on me. So many of us in this church feel disempowered or overcome because we feel we have no impact ability to those around us who don't know Jesus. We feel little strength to bring others to Jesus who are closed to Jesus, blind to Jesus, confused by Jesus, disinterested in Jesus, comfortable without Jesus, or actually hostile towards Jesus. And we come to these situations and we're just like, but, you know, like I don't have three PhDs in theology and I... I don't know what to say, and, and I'm trying to be honest and faithful, and I really want them to meet Jesus, and you fill in the blank, they're comfortable or disinterested, or they think I'm a total bigot, or, and I don't know what to say. Here's the starting point, everyone. Remember this. Ask Jesus to open the door first before you try opening it. When Jesus opens a door, he opens a door. We need to start praying as we're praying for our family and our friends as we prayed and sang in that song, O Spirit of God, now over my street. We need to start asking the sovereign one, Jesus, to open a door because when he opens a door, people are going to listen differently. We need to start committing ourselves to fervent prayer behind the scenes that the sovereign Jesus opens doors to those who are comfortable, to those that are disinterested, to those that are hostile in our lives and say, Jesus, I'm just a weak person. You've got to show up, so I'm going to be faithful, but open that door because when you do, I'll know it was never about me and it was absolutely about you. But it takes us working hand-in-hand with God Make a commitment this week. Pray, start praying for Jesus who opens a door. And I love this. You can't close the door when he opens it. Push all you want. Tent or tent. It doesn't, he's opened it. Pray that God does that in your family, in your corporation, in, in, your, in your extended family, in your, in your home. Wherever it is, start praying that the sovereign one opens doors and see what God does new. Don't bang up against the door without him doing it first. Follow Jesus and it will cost you. Ask Jesus to open your door and be okay that you're weak. And here's the last thing. There's joy, friends. I end with this. 
Joy is coming, and joy is here. Notice what he says to these persecuted Christians. Your identity is in Jesus. Your destiny is in Jesus. Our future is bright. The new Jerusalem is coming where, again, no more pain, death, abuse, no more disease, no more pollution, no more slavery, no more misunderstanding, no more evil, no form of injustice. Eden in its fullest form will be given back. It's going to be the place where we'll be in full community with Jesus and others. And our relationship with Jesus in the now is a foretaste of what is about to come. And let me end with these words. Everyone ready? Some of you are saying, why would I suffer for Jesus? Why would I give up friends or family for Jesus? Why would I spend all the energy trying to convince people to meet Jesus who don't want to know? Here's the answer, because a new Jerusalem is coming. You've got to ground your suffering today and what's coming in the future, because that will give you freedom. It's worth the suffering now. Because the suffering is a foretaste to something greater. That is that Jesus is going to come and remove suffering. If you don't look to the future as Christians, hear this. If you do not ground your everyday life in the idea that Jesus says you are mine now, and the new Jerusalem is coming, you will not suffer for Jesus. You won't give up things for him because you'll think today is the most important day of your life. Guess what, friends? It's not. The new Jerusalem is coming And that's why we suffer, and that's why we labor, and that's why we pray, and that's why we serve the poor, and that's why we tell our friends about Jesus who don't want to know, because we know that Jesus says we're owned, there's a coming future, and that's why we're willing to do it in the now, because Jesus says to us time and time again, I'm going to make all things right. Don't buy into the demonic lie that this is the best day you get, because it's not. Something grander is coming. It's broken into the now, but it's not here completely. And everyone said? Phenomenal. Jesus is so good. So let's just pray about this as a community and then let's respond in song. So Jesus, same Jesus that spoke to the Philadelphian church, same Jesus who spoke to all seven churches, who's holy and true, who holds the key of David. When he opens a door, it cannot shut. To you, we speak. And we join the global church right now people meeting in persecution, people meeting in mega churches, people in small and large churches, traditional liturgical free churches, but all of us who confess Jesus, we, we join the global church and every angel and we declare, we love you, Jesus, we do. You are faithful and true. And we pray that you would give us power to continue to live out a faithful life. I pray, Holy Spirit, you give the ability for certain people in our church and online to suffer because they need to say yes to Jesus over others. I pray for other people who are so desperate for friends and family to meet you, Jesus, and we feel so powerless. We pray this. Jesus, open a door. Start opening doors and close other doors to other things that would prevent them from knowing. And lastly, we just again thank you that because you love us, because you've called us your own, that there is a new coming hope. And we are deeply thankful, and we want to say this before you, Jesus, publicly. And we know we don't get into the new Jerusalem because of what we are or what we've done. But we're thankful you're going to make all things right. And we ground our hope in the coming work of Jesus and his current work. We do this again in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you want to know more about C4, get connected to the life of the church, or give to this ministry, visit our website, www.c4church.com.